can find me online on Twitter at TurnerASQ. I am a contributor with The Athletic and Sounder at Heart, and you can find my other writings at SoccerESQ.com. The U.S. Soccer Federation made a long-rumored announcement this week, shuttering both the Boys and Girls Soccer Development Academies. The USSDA was created in 2007 to help identify and develop talent from across the country. And while the program had its benefits, politics, turf wars, and finances led the Federation to eliminate the academies. In its place, Major League Soccer announced an expanded development system to help develop young boys, while the ECNL is likely to assume responsibility on the women's side. Where that leaves youth development in this country is up in the air, however, as the coronavirus pandemic hovers over everything, including the Federation itself. To talk about where youth development goes from here, Paul Kennedy and Bo Dirk join me to talk about the changes and what we can expect to see in light of this major decision from U.S. soccer. Just as a warning, Paul Kennedy's parrot decides to interrupt us for a few minutes. But aside from that, it's a great interview and I hope you enjoy it. All right, joining me now on the podcast, uh, two great guests, uh, Bo Durr from uh, Reigning Soccer Dad and various books, I'm sure, which we will uh, we'll plug a little bit here as well, uh, and Paul Kennedy, Editor-in-Chief of Soccer America and also alumnus of the uh, best uh, school in the country, Ghost Fighters. Uh, thanks, guys, for joining me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, I brought uh, you, uh, you guys on. You guys have been doing some great reporting on what has been kind of the issue of the day uh, for the last week. Um, which is basically U.S. soccer shuttering the development academy. Um, along with that, MLS has uh, opened up their own kind of development system. But I wanted to obviously focus on what the uh, U.S. soccer has done because that's what has really caused a bit of an uproar. And so uh, before we get to that, though, I wanted to ask you both uh, how you're doing uh, with the coronavirus having essentially shut down everything. Uh, Bo, uh, you're out there on the East Coast. Uh, how are things uh, out in your neck of the woods? Boring. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, we're not as, as badly as New York. Uh, I, D.C. itself has been better off, um, I think, just because, you know, everything started closing down at the same time, and New York had already been hit pretty badly uh, by that point. D.C. hadn't. Of course, I'm out here in the suburbs, and there are only, only those of us who went to curling events who have <laughs> who've probably gotten it. And uh, Paul, we talked a little bit before we started uh, broadcasting. You're down in California. What about you? Uh, how are things uh, down there uh, on the uh, west, uh, southern side of the West Coast? Well, actually, north. north I'm in the Bay Area, so oh, yeah, yeah. I'm in uh, south of me, California, is. which is next to uh, Berkeley. And we were the first area to shelter in place when the six uh, barrier counties uh, made the decision on. Uh, um, March 16th and so we're sort of been used to it a little ahead of everybody else and obviously just like uh, uh, where you up are in Seattle after you know uh, um, early hot spots it settled down a lot and uh, you know so you know I'm at work at home work at home for years so for me my routine isn't different except for you know I don't go out to get coffee don't go my wife and I don't go out to dinner but you know my wife still walks the dog. The only difference is she doesn't take it to the park to, to walk it because they had to shut them down because everyone was going to the parks here. Yeah, yeah. There's, it's, it's, it's been a bit of spotty compliance. Uh, our friends down in Florida seem to have not gotten the memo, but <laughs> uh, we'll leave that for a, another discussion. So let's, let's get into it. Um, you know, earlier this week, uh, U.S. Soccer announced that they are shuttering the uh, U.S. Soccer Development Academy. Uh, I wanted to talk to both of you kind of, you know, there's a bit of a, the reason it was formed back in 2007 was kind of to 
to identify talent, uh, streamline, uh, you know, streamline things. Uh, you know, there were some issues with regard to players being, uh, you know, just tired or burnt out from their, from their club, you know, their club groups. But Paul, you, you, uh, you pulled up a couple of interesting articles from back in 2007. So I wanted to know if you, uh, if you could elaborate a little bit on what you were covering back then as the uh, development Academy was the first, uh, you know, first brought into being. Mm -hmm. at, at that time, there was a concern that there were uh, too many games, not enough practice, too much what uh, some of the people behind the development academy called too much trophy collecting. That's obviously a problem in all sports, you know, and was a problem in soccer before, and you know is and is you know you could say is still a problem today. Um, you know, so the development academy started with a lot of good intentions, which was to put more emphasis on practice, less emphasis on games. Um, Sasha Sarovsky, the Maryland coach, who has now become one of the biggest, was one of the biggest critics in the end of the Development Academy, at the time said uh, they, meaning college coaches, saw too many tired players, too many players who um, were spending too much time playing games and, and uh, but, but, but over the years it became the reverse where with all the practice, and less um, games, players tend to become more robotic and less passionate. So to some degree, in, in trying to solve one problem, it created another. And I think all along, one of the issues has always been the issue of balance between competition and not competition. I think the other thing that, that is important to remember, at the time, the Federation was trying to address not just um, the issue of uh, the higher levels, meaning say ages 14 to 18, but the issue of, of having kids have a good experience at the ages of say eight to 13. And the reality is, is that that's not changed at all in terms of any progress on it. And I think also the reality is, is that there are very few things you can really do to solve that unless you were to go back um, like all the other sports who had 50, 100 years head starts where they didn't have parents involved, they didn't have coaches involved, and kids went out and played and learned the game on their own. And so to a certain extent, I think one of the problems all along is the Federation is trying to fast track things. And I guess the, you know, the last thing I'd say is that even someone like Kevin Payne, who was one of the, who was the head of the technical committee that uh, formed the DA, is now the head of U.S. club soccer, and has been obviously one of the biggest critics of the DA, said one of the keys was to try to um, get parents to understand that they need to measure um, the soccer experience of their children in more than wins and losses. And I think one of the, the hardest parts is how do you measure that? And that's something that I don't think uh, has ever been answered in a good way. And also it's something that parents are never the ones who can measure that. It's only the kids themselves. Yeah, and Bo, you've been covering this, uh, you know, a, a long time too. And so, what what have you? What would you say have been kind of the 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 benefits of the USSDA and the negatives? Paul kind of alluded to a, a little bit of that. But uh, from your perspective, what have you seen um, since it was created back in two thousand seven to its shuttering now? Uh, you know, I guess essentially, what's been the legacy of the uh, U.S. Soccer Development Association? Well, I think Paul was right. I think Paul was right that it started with uh, good intentions, and it was to uh, have kids in a training environment, a, you know, a more professional training environment, and to play fewer games. Now, the problem is that if you have fewer clubs, 
then you have to travel more. And the saying that I like to trot out is that no one ever became a better soccer player on an airplane. So you had a lot of teams traveling to play you know, vast distances to play games that might not be any better than the games there in their local leagues. And you even had people, there was someone from the Baltimore Bays who was at the uh, now United Soccer Coaches, then NSCAA convention, who said that, yeah, we left the development academy because we were getting better games uh, in our local league. And so why would I stay in that? Um, also, the other aspect of it was that U.S. soccer for a while really wanted all its youth clubs or at least all its elite youth clubs to play kind of the same way. And there was a curriculum that Claudio Reyna uh, unveiled in 2011, and it was unveiled and then just quietly disappeared. Um, but there was a bit of top-down programming from the Development Academy, and coaches frankly hated that. Uh, the co so the coaches hated that, and then the ban on high school play uh, irritated a lot of people, and you know more so on the girls' side, which we'll get to. But that took away what a lot of people thought was kind of a fun environment and made it yeah a, a job. You know, and the last thing you know, sixteen-year-olds don't want full-time jobs, in my experience. <laughs> well, they want a job; they want to be paid for it. Yeah, that too. And so. Did the USSDA, you know, how did they kind of evolve uh, between when they started it back in 2007 and, and now that they've, you know, shuttered? Uh, you know, they added the Girls Development Academy. That was obviously something that we're, we're going to talk about uh, as well. But uh, did, did you see them as, as doing anything to really improve uh, the development of soccer in this country? Or was it just a place to kind of, you know, earmark or identify high-level talent and get them into, uh, you know, the USSDA program? Um, I think a couple of things I'd say is one, one thing that changed in the middle of the boys' side, and they started right away with the girls, and was its death probably, uh, was they banned boys from playing high school soccer uh, about halfway through. Initially, uh, there was no problem with that, which meant that to a certain extent, the DAs, were, were regional in, in that most played six to seven months as opposed to 10, and it depended upon what part of the country you were off, depending upon the high school seasons. And that is something that in, in sort of the quote global picture or the bigger picture of national uh, soccer, you know, is something where, the, you know, you're trying to s solve 10 problems and each, each solution is going to create a problem for someone else. And, and, and high school soccer is something that, still has relevance in terms of building the, the, the sort of the community of soccer in this country and a lot of parts of the country for underserved kids, especially in Latino areas, high school soccer is the only thing they can afford to do because it's the only thing they have free access to. And uh, I think the other thing is true though, is that, the, that, that one of the benefits of the, of the development Academy was, is that, there was, um, even though there are a lot of issues related to Latino kids and access and things like that, is a lot of players in the Latino communities were um, entered programs which they would have never otherwise and never did in the old pre-development academy club system. And, uh, you know, so that was a benefit. And I think on the issue of elite players, the last couple of years, we're starting to see a lot more kids going over to... Uh, Europe at a young age and do better. And that's something where it's partly because the Development Academy in a good way allowed kids and their parents 
and kids and those, their hanger-on, so to speak, to have a better understanding of what it took at a younger age to be a pro. And so that they're much better prepared for it when they get the opportunity as opposed to kids 10 years ago who when they turn 18, 19, 20 and turn pro and they, they, they quickly were lost. Okay, so uh, that leads us into where we are now with the decision to, to fold the Development Academy. And I wanted to kind of, you know, you guys did some great reporting on you know, some of the reasons and I guess let's just start off uh, with, with what is probably the obvious uh, reason, which is the cost. Um, and you know, they've been, you know, the Soccer Federation has been, they've raised a lot of money. They had a very large surplus, especially at the uh, end of 2016, start of 2017 after the uh, uh, Copa America. Uh, but obviously with things as they are now, uh, they've apparently made this decision. I think, you know, they were projected to spend about nine and a half million dollars by the end of 2021 or in 2021 on development academies. So, you know, uh, Bo, what, you know, as far as the cost is concerned, do you think that's a legitimate, uh, you know, a reason for them to shutter this or, or is this kind of just their, uh, you know, they decided they don't want to be in this business anymore? I, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, I've, I'm actually working on a story for Paul right now uh, where I've got uh, taking my massive spreadsheets again. And yeah, when you uh, delete the line for development Academy, all of a sudden the bottom line looks a, a lot better. And that's important to the Federation because they've been planning to spend, well, initially they planned to spend that pile of assets down to $50 million. Yeah. Then with all the legal fees they were spending, it became 42. Now they're looking at uh, just uncertainty. Um, yeah. You know, they don't know how much they're going to have to pay out to settle lawsuits. You know, it's not just the women's national team, but it's the NASL and relevant sports. And, you know, you would know better than I, I think the NASL and relevant probably will not be looking at a substantial sum of money. Uh, and relevant is deja vu champions world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right. Um, and also they have, new management all the way across the board and they have uh investments i did look at their investments that it's not like it's all tied up and you know um things Apple that are going to float around with the dutch yeah it's not, it's not all tied up in stuff that could go wildly up and down uh, but it's enough uncertainty that uh getting rid of you know an eight to nine million dollar enterprise each year uh makes sense but it also makes sense um when you look at, and Charlie Bohm, writing for U.S. Soccer Players, uh, made this point, and it was something I've been thinking about as well, and I think I tweeted it uh, as well, uh, which is that it gets them out of a gender equity problem, uh, which is that, you know, they, they, I think, felt compelled to start a girls' DA because they had a boys' DA. Girls didn't necessarily want the DA. Girls were very happy in the ECNL, and... So the DA started and brought over uh, a few teams, and teams kept going back from the DA to the ECNL. So they were losing that turf war. Well, if you're going to punt on the girls' DA, even though it would be driven by customer demand, essentially, yeah. um, it would still look bad. You know, the optics of having a boys' DA and not a girls' DA were not good. So to be able to punt on both of those and – know that MLS was, I mean, you know, MLS didn't decide in the one minute between those press releases going out uh, to, they didn't suddenly decide to start an academy program. There was obviously some coordination with that. So MLS jumping in uh, helps them. Uh, so yeah, it, 
the the money side is good, but also I think it gets rid of a headache. Yeah, and that's an excellent point. Uh, you know, the the girls' DA, uh, you know, is obviously a relatively recent, uh, you know, uh, program that was started by the federation, and yeah, there's certainly. Uh, you know, that's an excellent point uh, regarding the fact that uh, if the girl, even though the girls would be going or were going to the ENCL or ECNL, excuse me, uh, because they prefer it, uh, it's still uh, potentially a bad look, especially with an equity uh, equal pay fight going on. Paul, uh, you know, as far as the uh, revenue, uh, we've got obviously the coronavirus is affecting everything around the world. There is no sports going on right now. And obviously that means that the Federation isn't able to uh, hold friendlies, uh, you know, qualifying is up in the air, uh, you know, the tournaments where they raise a lot of money. Uh, what do you see as, kind of, you know, obviously there's going to be a negative impact on yeah. that. Do you think it's something that, you know, where do you think it goes from here? Uh, is there uh, a potential for a drastic reduction in Federation income such that they, they're really, you know, behind the eight ball when, when things get, start to get back to normal? Um, the way I would put it out is I've been, I've been involved long enough in this and that I started at, as the managing editor of Soccer America in 1985, although I've been writing back into the early 70s, is when I started, the Federation was insolvent. Werner Fricker was the president. He, he, he paid the bills out of the loans he got from the bank of which he did his construction work. Um, about 2000, the Federation you know, wasn't insolvent, but they were struggling. I could see, um, if they're not careful, the Federation uh, being in trouble again, meaning that, you know, Bo referred to the, the $40 million they, they uh, project out, um, unless they make some, a lot more cuts, um, you know, that, that $40 million in lost revenue, I could see happening very easily. I mean, you have to remember is that, uh, you know, to some degree, the Federation is helped. There are people, you know, complain about the sum deal, but with a guaranteed payment. Yeah. That protects them in this case. Um, but there is, you know, we don't know what the minimum payment is versus what, what the add-ons versus additional sales are. Um, we don't know what the Nike deal is, but I'd have to assume that Nike is protected so that it's going to be, you know, but like you say, you don't have national team games. You don't have the expenses of some of them. Uh, you still have to pay the women again. The women, you know, are getting guaranteed contracts that, uh, that uh, another situation they might not have. Um, but you even have things like, you know, I, I don't even know what the dollar figure is, but I'm sure it's in the millions of a couple million. Um, you know, the Federation get, I guess is the relevant point of they get international uh, uh, game fees. They're going to be zero on that ledger this year. So, uh, you know, and the other point is going to the future, meaning, you know, for the Federation and MLS, I think one of the biggest issues they're going to face is um, the renewal of, of contracts, the TV contract after 22, the renewal of the SUM deal where, you know, they were looking at um, a lot of big increases, partly because of sort of soccer in general, um, the TV market, the World Cup 26, but this changes everything because on the other side, you've got networks and everyone else losing a ton of money. Yeah, if I can uh, jump in, I mean, I don't want to give away all of the story that I have uh, almost written, but it does uh, piggyback on uh, what Paul was mentioning. And, you know, the funny thing is, when I was doing the math on, on this, and I took out, okay, let's say that the national teams are idle for six months, or let's just say, okay, 50% of the expenses and the revenue from those games uh, is gone. And all of a sudden, the numbers look better. I went, wait a minute. And that's and then I dug back. And yeah, they actually budget at a loss for national team games. Now, 
there are a couple of problems here though. One is sponsorship. And again, as Paul said, we don't know what the minimum payment is from Soccer United Marketing. You know, Soccer United Marketing is kind of a buffer between, yeah. you know, uh, volatility in the marketplace and U.S. soccer. And, uh, you know, they have been told several times, you know, hey, we're the ones who lost money uh, when the U.S. men didn't qualify for the World Cup. Um, the other thing is that it will mean, it, you know, when they get back to playing, it, it will be mostly tournaments. You know, they'll have qualifying to do and so forth. So you won't have friendlies, which, you know, you can – U.S. soccer is still at the point where you can put the U.S. men in Mexico in a large stadium and print money. And so, you know, you won't be able to do that. And when you have international tournaments, then you don't necessarily control uh, the revenue. And then think about possibly one of the worst case scenarios is uh, if you play in, in an empty stadium, well, then you have a lot of the expenses, not all of them. I mean, you could you know, rent a smaller field and you wouldn't have all the vendors and as many people necessary, uh, but still a lot of the expenses against no revenue. So, you know, again, it comes back to volatility. If I, when I, the numbers I ran, U.S. soccer's bottom line was pretty healthy. It's just that um, if things get any worse, it could go downhill fast. Yeah, and I think you know some uh, you know as you say it's been it's been uh, punching back for many uh, in the uh, in the soccer community, especially in the grassroots. But as you say, they have provided a buffer for the federation in the form of guaranteed payments. And you know, last time I looked at the numbers, they were at you know minimum payments were around twenty to twenty five million dollars a year uh, that some was paying out to U.S. soccer just uh, you know as as what they are guaranteed. And so, you know, that is something that is certainly helping keep their, their numbers um, in the block to the extent that they are, um, if they are. Uh, you know, and I guess speaking of uh, some, there's obviously the MLS uh, aspect of this, or as you say, you know, minutes after the uh, U.S. Soccer Federation announced the shuttering of the uh, Development Academy, MLS uh, announced their own, uh, you know, academy as well. Uh, and I suppose... You know, I read a story on, um, it might have been from Charlie, um, but it was on MLSsoccer.com uh, where uh, one of the coaches, I think it was the RSL coach, uh, Juarez basically said that MLS had essentially outgrown uh, the U.S. Soccer Development Academy. So I'm curious, what are, your, what are both your thoughts about the relationship of MLS with the Federation in this, in this realm? And it, you know, it seems like MLS is essentially one here. Um, in the fact that the development academy is now gone and MLS is basically going to control uh, the develop development of most high-level players in this country. Yeah, I mean, uh, there were some MLS people that I've, I've talked with who uh, did complain about sort of the erratic uh, quality of uh, competition. And also, there are some people I've talked with who think, you know, look, you don't need to have these national competitions for all of these age groups. Uh, the big one really to focus on is U17, because once you get above 17, you're generally either signing a pro contract or you're prepping for college. And U14s, why are you traveling at, U, at Nationwide at U14? That doesn't make a lot of sense. So we could see a program that's just MLS clubs, uh, well, with a few more. They, they say they're going to take um, a ton of them, but you know some have already fled to the ECNL, both boys and girls. Because, uh, you know, one thing we should point out is that uh, when the U.S. soccer started its Girls Development Academy, the ECNL uh, turned around and started a boys program. And so that didn't seem too attractive at first, but now it probably 
uh, looks fairly attractive. So I think you could see a smaller competition there, and that would be good. The only problem will be what do you do with a talented 15-year-old in Mississippi? What do you do with a talented 15-year-old in North Carolina? Well, you've got a team starting up in Charlotte. Um, and, you know, we have to remember that the precursor to all this was the residency program in Bradenton, Florida, where they used to have 20, and then I think they grew it to uh, about 40 U17 players. The biggest success was the first class with the Marcus Beasley and Landon Donovan and Bobby Convey and that team that finished fourth in the U17 uh, World Cup in 1999. Uh, and someone once said, look, Bradenton's fine, but we need 20 of them. Well, you're about to have 20 to 25 Bradenton. Because some of them will be residential, so they may go out and scout. And uh, it may be an easy self. You know, it's a hard sell for a 13-year-old, but it might be an easier sell for a 15 or 16-year-old to say, look, come spend two years in Philadelphia or Kansas City, and you'll get at this highest level that we can offer of youth soccer, and then you can see where you go from there. I just added, you know, a a couple of things just along the same lines, and, and I agree with that, is that the thing, again, a couple of historical contexts is when the development academy started, MLS, not a lot of teams had development academies. MLS teams had development academies. And if they were, they were rather modest. Um, but what you've really seen in the last five years is MLS clubs spending, you know, tens of millions of dollars on these new complexes. Obviously, they need them for their first team. Obviously, they need them for their USL second team. But in a lot of cases, they've, they've, they've added uh, fields for all their academy teams. Some of them had uh, um, actual physical high schools to, for these kids to go to school every day. Um, you've had um, in, at RSL in Utah, they have a dormitory. So that, you know, MLS has too much invested to, to stop this. Um, and also, I think one of the points that MLS people made to me earlier in the week was, is so much of what they are thinking about relates to the 2026 World Cup, where they see in the years from now until shortly after uh, the uh, World Cup, a greater interest in the sport, and especially a greater interest among kids who believe that uh, they have an opportunity to become a uh, much more motivated to succeed at soccer. And I think one of the things, a sport that's sort of a model for this is ice hockey, where you have a lot of kids moving around the country, do a lot of residency programs, you know, so that it, using the example of the Mississippi kid, is that now in the NHL, you have kids from all parts of the country who are in the NHL, they didn't, they didn't spend their whole lives there, they moved at some point. Um, you know, and so, you know, you, you're starting to really see this of, of, of kids moving around the country from, uh, you know, one part of the country. And the last thing is, uh, MLS, in terms of the competition they get, what I don't get is they complain about the competition, but it isn't no different than, say, in most countries in Europe where Barcelona, with their greatest, most famous academy in the world, still has to play, you know, the second and third division academy teams yeah. from uh, the Catalan area because that's their regional league. So you're going to, you know, you, you know, you're not going to get a perfect situation. You're not going to get a, a Mexico where, you know, teams fly or drive or whatever um, at the U20, U17 level and, and play at the same time as their uh, first teams. Yeah, I mean, 
I think the bottom line is there's is just a lot of country here. There's a lot of uh, interest in youth soccer, but not enough teams and uh, or clubs to cover the area. As you, Bo, you mentioned, you know, what what's the kid in 15 year old in Mississippi going to do uh, with no MLS team around, and there may not be a whole lot of club uh, a club action. Um, and I think one one act I would say is that uh, recently the, the the head coach at West Virginia University uh, resigned. He'd been there 15 years. And the reason why he resigned was they have a 13-year-old kid who was a really good player. And uh, his mother, uh, every day was driving him, or, or three times a week was driving from Morgantown, Pennsylvania, to Philadelphia to go mm-hmm. to the union's uh, academy program, which is considered one of the best in the country. And they decided that driving all that time was was too much. And, and the coach actually quit his job so that uh, they could move to to Philadelphia to, you know, to continue with their son's, quote, soccer career. And the point being that you have a lot of parents um, who believe that, and you have a lot of kids who believe that too. Yeah, Clint, Clint Dempsey obviously is a famous example, driving three hours to yeah. get to his, yeah. his academy, uh, you know, uh, back, you know, back then. This is, you know, 15 years ago at this point, or more than that, um, as a matter of fact. So let's move to kind of the impact of the closure. Uh, we talked a little bit about uh, the girls' development, but I wanted to focus in a little bit more on that with the ECNL. Uh, as we mentioned, that was kind of, uh, there's a turf, there was a turf war of sorts going on, um, and it seemed like the ECNL was essentially winning. That's where most of the, the, the girls were headed. Um, and so uh, do you see... You know, the, the shuttering of the girls' uh, academy uh, from U.S. soccer, uh, it seems like that just kind of moves things where they were already going. Bo, is that a fair way, to, fair way to put it at this point? Yeah, it's back to the future or future back or something like that. And the ECNL, uh, by the way, uh, at least used to be, I think still is uh, based in Richmond, go Spiders. <laughs> so the, um, but the ECNL was always a better sell. And one thing they found, and – you know, there's there's always um, you always have to be careful in talking about things like this. But there seemed to be a cultural element uh, with girls soccer players, where high school soccer was more important to uh, girls players than it might be to to men's. And, you know, and so the ECNL said, "Hey, you can keep playing high school soccer." And so I think that was one reason they were winning. But uh, also, just a lot of clubs, a lot of technical directors just sort of chafed under the notions of what the Development Academy uh, was telling them to do. So, yeah, it does go back to, you know, a lot of teams will go back to the ECNL. There are also all sorts of other, you know, there are so many different leagues that claim to be elite now. I mean, eventually you'll have to where every league is either a leader premier. Yeah. Um, but, but there are, you know, other leagues that are, yeah. What we'll see, what we'll wonder about is how much fragmentation there still is. You know, in, in a way, this could be an opportunity. You know, there is a youth soccer task force that has met a good bit with representatives from U.S. club, U.S. youth, uh, AYSO, and uh, U.S. specialty sports, which operate somewhere in, say, soccer. Uh, you know, a couple of smaller operations there. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if they can kind of agree on maybe some sort of pyramid structure uh, that really does funnel the best players up to the ECNL um, or on the boys side of the development Academy. Yeah, there's a, there was a story, uh, I think uh, Charlie wrote that uh, interview with uh, ECNL uh, president, maybe. Um, and I just want to focus in with the coronavirus, obviously still impacting things. Uh, is there any concern about the financial uh, 
future of of many of these girls development clubs. There's also a, a story that uh, Sebastian Salazar did with Julie Foudy uh, regarding just women's soccer generally um, in the wake of the uh, coronavirus. Uh, but, you know, dialing down to the kind of the women's level, uh, Paul, uh, are, do you th- see any concern out there about uh, where uh, if the investment in, in girls soccer um, going forward? Um, I think girls soccer, boys soccer, I'd say is that most club directors we talk to are scared. You know what? Mm-hmm. Um, that, uh, you know, as they're making decisions, you know, a lot of them want to, want to be able to tell their clubs what's going to happen. But the, and part of it is, is because no parent is, is willing to commit for the future because the parent doesn't know their own situation. They don't know whether they're going to have a job. They don't know whether they're going to have the money they had before to uh, spend on soccer. They don't know whether there are new priorities in terms of their spending that make soccer less important. Um, you know, also the reality is we don't know what the college situation is, is that, you know, especially on the girls side, it was all driven on, on getting a college scholarship. We don't know what that's going to be, whether you're going to be college programs, you know, um, a couple of years down the line. So everything is up in the air. Everything is uncertain. And, um, you know, that's, you know, part of it where, you know, you know, everybody is worried. Yeah, and there's obviously uh, uh, soccer, uh, college soccer is is under the uh, chopping block. There's already been some, uh, you know, teams or schools that have canceled their programs. Um, and it doesn't seem like that's going to be the last. Uh, those are going to be the last. I think uh, New Mexico did shut theirs, uh, I think, recently. Last, and, last year, and it was uh, University of Cincinnati. Cincinnati, you know, yes. Uh, you know, a, a well-known sports program, although, you know, they there were other reasons for the decision. But they were, you know, they were – sort of low-hanging fruit of get, what to get rid of um, at that school, um, you know. But I think everything, you know, whether it's, you know, if you look at some of the budgets this week that some of the cities are putting out for the rest of the year, um, you know, the first thing that's going is park and recreation money. And that's something that, you know, if you want a place to play, you need, a, you need your, uh, you know, your soccer fields open that's a municipal run. And in some cases, it isn't a matter of them being in bad shape. It's, it's, they got, there's no one to take care of them. Yeah, and actually that uh, that leads into something I did want to uh, catch or touch base on because you guys both had reports uh, that uh, U.S. Soccer has made some personnel changes, some layoffs, some furloughs, and I, uh, uh, Brian Remetti, who uh, I had a chance to meet uh, briefly at the AGM in 2018, uh, was let go. I think Tanya Wallach, is that uh, also correct, who was also uh, let go by the Federation? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so – and – Obviously, the main, uh, you know, thrust or behind those is the coronavirus and the kind of uncertainty. Um, and so I wanted to give you guys a chance to kind of uh, what, what are you hearing about, you know, some of the reasons behind that beyond coronavirus? Uh, and do you expect to see more of those types of announcements coming down the pike, especially with the uncertainty of uh, the coronavirus and when things will get back to normal, if, if ever? Well, some of this was political. Uh, you know, yeah. you always have um, people kind of uh, butting heads and, and so forth in an organization uh, because, you know, it, it, well, every time I've, I've been in a newspaper industry, so I've seen plenty of layoffs and sometimes they clear out some dead weight and sometimes uh, really good people get caught in the same net. And, you know, that's always going to be the case. You know, there may be a couple of people at U.S., I mean, you never want to see anyone lose their jobs. But maybe a couple of people at U.S. Soccer weren't up to, weren't performing uh, to the best that they'd want there. But a lot of people 
surely were. And so, yeah, at the executive level, it's just, you know, Will Wilson said um, in his letter, I believe he said organizational uh, changes. And yeah, that's what, um, that's, that's what I'd heard as well. Of course, the funny thing is two years, yeah, two years ago, uh, there was this, you know, when Carlos Cordero came in, he reorganized things so that there were 10 uh, direct reports uh, to the CEO. Two of them had not been filled yet. Those were the general managers for the men's and women's uh, positions. So you had uh, eight, um, eight people in those jobs. Uh, five of them are gone in two years. Mm. And one of them is Lydia Walkie, who is in limbo. I mean, basically, the other ones you have, uh, Nika Romaine on the technical side still there, and their communications director, Neil Beathy. Uh, so it's some of it's just that they're still you know, turnover uh, at the top. And then down the line, it goes back again to the, to the volatility. I mean, if, if I were running U.S. soccer, I would not have made such drastic cuts right now. Um, I would have waited to have seen the impact of things um, down, you know, down the line. I mean, you could say, well, we're clearing out space in case we have to pay a big settlement to the, to the women's team. Yeah, maybe you wait to see how that plays out, and then, um, you know, maybe they take back the PR battle if the women, you know, get um, were to get judgment their way, which you know I think you and other people have analyzed that think that it's pretty unlikely they're going to come out of court with sixty-seven million dollars. Um, but if they did, and then U.S. Soccer immediately had to lay a bunch of people off while they appealed, I think that might change uh, public opinion slightly. Uh, so. Yeah, I think it. There's, it's a mixture of. Uh, someone asked me, is it financial or is it performance? And I said, uh, perhaps both of those, and perhaps yes. also politics. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and just uh, before you get in there, Paul, uh, you know, you, you mentioned Lydia Walkie, who was who was general counsel for the federation, who was put placed on administrative leave after the uh, summary judgment uh, controversy. Um, sounds like she may have been retained. At least there's some reporting out there. I, you know, I, I've spoken with U.S. Soccer um, on background about this, and there were definitely some questions about uh, her role in in the summary judgment uh, motion. Of course, you could probably say that for most of the federations higher higher ups, in, uh, as far as as far as that you know motion is concerned. Um, but yeah, the, you know, it's interesting that they decided now was the time to kind of restructure. Um, you know, restructure things. Um, I agree with Bo, a little bit is I'd say is that, you know, with Will Wilson coming in, he's going to want, and, and any new CEO, especially a volatile organization is going to want to, you know, for better or worse, is going to want a, uh, a clean slate. So I'm sure that he probably got an insurance and assurances from the board or whoever he dealt with in terms of his hire, that he could make some changes so that he could felt he could do what he wanted. And I think on the changes to me, I go back that it's financially motivated that, that, you know, as tough it is to say, um, if there's a lot of uncertainty in the revenues and the Federation side, there is, uh, you know, if you're going to, you know, as tough it is, if you're going to make cuts, make them right away. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, they're just kind of looking at the future and seeing a bunch of uncertainty and they're just 
you know, kind of clearing some brush uh, uh, where they can to start. Uh, let's close it out just briefly. Uh, talk since we did reference it, the women's national team lawsuit. Um, if you guys have both been following this uh, very closely. There's uh, the case is currently in summary judgment status. Uh, the uh, court is reviewing those those motions. Um, the trial has been set back to June, uh, and you know, we've talked a little bit about, um, you know, on Twitter or wherever else about, you know, the likelihood of either side winning this. Um, I want to get both of your uh, thoughts on just the summary judgment, uh, kind of where it stands now. And also settlement negotiations. My understanding is that, and I checked in in the last couple of days, there are no settlement negotiations going on between the parties. Um, and that's, again, that's very recent information, which, again, surprises me to a, some degree. But, you know, I think the equal pay, the summary judgment controversy may have just soured the uh, waters to the point where we're at a point of no return. But just, you know, uh, either of you can take, kind of take this where you, uh, where you want to as far as where you see things kind of going between now and when we finally get a ruling on that summary judgment. Well, I think oh. your colleague in uh, soccer law on Twitter, uh, Stephen Bank, uh, was um, suggesting that what we hear back from the judge uh, on these summary judgment motions is unlikely to be an all-out summary judgment one way or the other, but an indication of what the judge is thinking, and that might prod things toward a settlement. So perhaps, you know, both sides are just looking to see uh, the cards that are, you know, see what cards they're dealt uh, from that, and also perhaps just trying to cool down uh, after that whole controversy. And, you know, point. you uh, Right, in U.S. soccer right now, I mean, they've taken such a battering in the court of public opinion, and I think they're waiting for you know the the especially kind of the drive-by pundits, the ones who aren't really the ones who couldn't spell in WSL but have you know uh, very strong opinions on you know equal pay and no idea what that really means. And so I think once they you know go chasing the net squirrel, uh, then you know maybe U.S. soccer's you know, maybe the heat dies down on them a bit and it's more advantageous for them to go to the table at that point. Um, I'd say, you know, we still have two months before the trial date, you know, we'll, yeah. you know, we'll, it's a lot of time to have uh, uh, some settlement talks. You know, my sense is that the coronavirus changed everything and that, uh, you know, uh, it, that, the, that a lot of, the, not a lot, but some of the leverage the women had to hold out for what, 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 you know, their, what would be their best scenario, which would be a, a victory and, and a high settlement, you know, uh, is gone in that, you know, to, to take $66 million now um, is something that, you know, they would, they would, they would you know, wipe out the Federation where, yeah. you know, pre coronavirus, you could have, you could have seen that as something that the Federation could have lived with in terms of its future, but not anymore. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a, that's where it's kind of at right now, um, which again leads me or makes me wonder again why there's not been settlement negotiations. But you know that's kind of an answer that both sides are kind of waiting to see what happens on summary judgment. But you know again, I think the coronavirus has has really changed uh, everything as far as that's concerned. Uh, the last I heard, the uh, you know the the amount that they were. Sh the, the difference in the amount that they were asking for, which is versus what the Federation was at, uh, offering was around eight to $10 million. Uh, I don't know if they're able to close that gap, but um, it's, yeah, I don't think <laughs> they're not coming out of there with 67 million at this point. I don't think, but you know, courts have surprised me before. That's for sure. Yeah. And 
you know, I mean, what I keep hearing is that the, the women are the ones who have been, um, you know, adamant about not going to the table for a while. I don't know. I, and I have, you know, not heard that denied uh, from the women's side. And yeah, I, I think, you mean, who was it? I think Neil Morris is often the one who says it's, uh, you know, it takes two to tango yeah. in that respect. And the other thing to bear in mind is the women's lawyer is Jeff Kessler, yeah. uh, who, you know, the most significant blemish he has in his legal career uh, was the MLS uh, players lawsuit in 2002. And then the appeal, probably uh, an ill-judged appeal, probably not an appeal they should have taken because it simply delayed for two more years their ability to form a players association and to actually start negotiating things. And things went much better from there. And you had just, you know, the MLS players associate uh, suit just had some absurdity of, you know, Jeff Kessler grilling Sunil Gulati about, you know, oh, isn't the first division really also the Premier League? You know, aren't there two first divisions in in England? I just things that um, I don't know if Paul Gardner was present in court that day, but if he was, I don't know how he kept himself restrained himself from throwing a pen at somebody um, because and some of the stuff in the women's lawsuit, some of the filings is. You know, it, it's also the same. I mean, you you can't really claim that, you know, the She Believes Cup is the equivalent of the Gold Cup for men. Uh, you know, and, you know, some of the things that are in there are going to be softballs uh, for U.S. soccer. And I wonder how much, you know, this may be too much speculation, but I wonder if Kessler is really wanting to take a harder line because, uh, you know, this was such a bad defeat for him. And also Kessler was representing the NASL. Yeah. which did not get that preliminary injunction. So this is, I wonder if this is Kessler's great white whale. And, you know, I've asked uh, people about that on the women's side and they say, shut up. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, Kessler has certainly been, uh, you know, at the forefront of challenging the Federation, um, the NASL lawsuit, which is, you know, not scheduled to go to court until about 2027 at this point um, is, is something that certainly, uh, you know, is a focus of his and, you know, kind of, you know, breaking up the, not breaking up the Federation, but at least shaking it up, I think maybe is a fair, a fair way to put it. So I think, right. it's, yeah, I think it's a good place to end it then guys. Uh, we can go out and enjoy uh, our, the rest of our weekends, uh, so to speak. Uh, but before we do, I wanted to give you guys a chance to kind of uh, plug where you can find your work. Obviously, Paul, uh, you're over at Soccer America, but, you know, give everyone your Twitter handles and all that good stuff. Sure. Um, you can reach me at Paul PK edit um, on Twitter and soccermerica.com and you can uh, go there and you can then uh, sign up for Soccer America Daily, which uh, provides um, all information you need every day on soccer, besides the great work and the columns that Bo and others have done, and also um, our popular soccer on TV schedule, which unfortunately isn't very popular <laughs> these days because there's only soccer to watch. Right. Yeah, SoccerAmerica.com, obviously a fantastic website. It's a great resource, uh, well worth a uh, subscription. Uh, and uh, Bo, uh, where can people find you? Uh, also at Soccer America, and you know, I also write for The Guardian and some other clients. Uh, there are, you know, unfortunately these days, for a lot of news organizations, sports is not their highest priority. Uh, so I've been able to clear out some uh, various projects. I finally published my um, self-indulgent, you know, 30,000-word uh, memoir of being an MMA writer. So if you go to Amazon and 
go to my author page, you can find that. It's, again, totally self-indulgent, but it's three bots and you're cooped up in the house, so why not? Uh, and also, of course, uh, Why the U.S. Men Will Never Win the World Cup uh, is also out at um, – I would say go to your local bookshop, but uh, they, they're probably <laughs> most of them aren't open. So you probably go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever, wherever you buy books online. And Twitter, I'm at Dewar Sport, D-U-R-E-S-P-O-R-T. Yeah, and I'd say the uh, your your most recent uh, book on the men never winning the World Cup is especially uh, relevant uh, these days. So again, right. uh, Paul Kennedy and Bodur, I want to thank you guys for joining me and uh, uh, stay safe out there. Thank you.